something about the Christmas season. Back in the day, when you pointed out a rainbow, there was only one thing that you could think about in culture, and that was the flood and God's covenant promise. Today, that's not true, is it? Rainbows are most prominent for something entirely different than God's covenant. And, uh, you know, Satan loves to co-opt things. In Genesis, the Bible says, And God said, let there be light. His first act of written creation is to make light. And then Jesus, when he's born, there's a star in heaven to, to demonstrate where he is and lead the, the people to him. And, and then Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And he, he points to the disciples and you and I, and he says, you are the light of the world. Like many twinkling lights pointing the way to the maker of light. And yet paganism has taken lights and made light worship, essentially. Satan loves to take things that God has created and twist them. In fact, we like to do that too, don't we? We, we take God's creation as a people, as humans, and we worship it. And we take things that we make and we worship it. And that's in the Bible called idolatry. When you take what God has created and make it a thing of worship, you undermine the creator. He never wants us to do that. Now, there's, there's been... A, quite a long history of Adventists grappling with how do we relate to paganism. We don't want it in our lives, do we? And when we get to the Christmas season, it comes in full force, these questions. And it always has. Since the early days of the Adventist church, we've wondered about things like Christmas trees and lights. And, and so in grappling with that and responding to that, Ellen White makes this interesting statement. And I think it's something that, that needs to pierce our hearts a bit. She says, every tree in Satan's garden hangs laden with fruits of vanity, pride, self-importance, evil desire, extravagance. Aren't those things that we can struggle with in a time where, where we're giving gifts to others and making displays of beautiful lights and things like that? Um, my neighbor, he, um, he has a nice house, and that whole house from top to bottom is covered with lights. I couldn't afford to compete with him. There's no way I could. Um, I mean, it's the, the ridge line of, the, of the, the roof, and every pillar is just wrapped with hundreds of lights. Uh, I think it's fun to put lights on my house, but I can't afford the extravagance of his display. But sometimes there's this competition of like, you know, showing off to our neighbors about things. And so we've got things that blow up and flap in the wind, and we've got lights, and we've got, right? There's, there's whole neighborhoods that you can go and look at the Christmas lights where people have competed with each other for years and years and years on Christmas light displays. Extravagance. It can easily be part of our Christmas experience. Or in giving gifts, you can ask yourselves, um, or you look at, at your gift that, that, that's been given, and you're like, oh, it's not as nice as I wanted it to be. I wish I'd really gotten. And we can have these attitudes of selfishness. Pride and arrogance can be there. But these are poison fruit hung on Satan's trees. Gratifying to the carnal heart, maybe. But not what God wants for us. Let the several churches present to God 
Christmas trees in every church. And then let them hang there on the fruits of beneficence and gratitude, offerings coming from willing hearts and hands, fruits that God will accept as an expression of our faith and our great love to him for, his, for, for the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. Let the evergreen be laden with fruit, rich and pure and holy, acceptable to God. Shall we not have such a Christmas as heaven can approve? This season, we have an amazing opportunity to remember that God poured out all of heaven for you and me. It is not a, a sacrifice to give back to God. Because all that we have belongs to him. Every breath I take is a gift from him. Every dollar I've earned is something handed down from heaven. And he invites us in this Christmas season not to be lifted up with pride and selfishness and greed and, and passion and lust. He's, he's asked us to focus on him, the giver of every good gift. Let our hearts be filled with with good things. And so this tree is here, not to celebrate some pagan um, experience, right? This tree is a giving tree. And I've got, a, I've got these envelopes here, and there's some uh, paper clips to hang them with, and a little um, hole punch to uh, put a little hole in it so you can put the paper clip through it and hang it on the tree. And, and the goal of this is to, is to say to God in a very practical, meaningful way, I'm so glad you gave me life. I want to share that with somebody else. So there's two projects that, that we're thinking of. One of them is something that we did last year, um, the Lane Project. You might know if you've been supporting them directly that, that Aaron and Chris, I can say their names now, um, Aaron and Chris White, who their pseudonyms were Ian and Elsa Lane, they're missionaries in Morocco. AFM has transitioned them. They've kept the mission that they've started in Morocco, and they've got other missionaries that are working with them. But they've transitioned Chris to be a, a, a I don't know, a district manager kind of person. And he's going to be going to various missionaries and supporting several different mission projects. And uh, he still is funded by generous donations from people who care about taking the gospel to the world. And so one of those projects would be the Lane Project. Um, and the other project would be our radio station, which by faith, I believe God will be giving to us sometime this winter or spring. Um, we, we have some things to, some hurdles to overcome, but um, if you'd like to support um, having gospel-oriented radio in our community, this is an opportunity that you can do that. So anytime in the month of December... Grab one of these when you come in or before you leave, hang it on the tree, and we'll collect those uh, from time to time and, uh, and put them towards the mission projects that will take the gospel to the world. So, um, just want to transition and let you know why we have this tree. I've done something. No, I haven't. Um, I also wanted to introduce a special family. The New Hearths are from Newport. And uh, we've invited them here to share a sacred concert today. The concert, they'll tell you more about. It's based in 19th century. And uh, I think you'll really enjoy what they have to share, both in their their singing and in their storytelling. And um, while we don't have a special offering for the New Hearths, if you would like to support their ministry, please approach them afterwards and just ask them, how can I support you in sharing the gospel in the way you do? And so without further ado... 
we'll let the new hearths come forward. Don't you see my Jesus coming? Don't you see in yonder cloud? With ten thousand angels round him, see how they my Jesus crowd. I am bound for the kingdom, will you go to glory with me? Alleluia, oh praise ye the Lord. Don't you see his arms extended? Don't you hear his charming voice? Each loving heart beats high for glory. Oh, my Jesus is my choice. I am bound for the kingdom. Will you go to glory with me? Alleluia. Oh, praise ye the Lord. Don't you see the saints ascending? Hear them shouting through the air. Jesus smiling, trumpet sounding, now his glory they will share. I am bound for the kingdom, will you go to glory with me? Alleluia, oh praise ye the Lord. Alleluia, alleluia, oh praise ye the Lord. Greetings. And happy Sabbath. Thank you. You guys are alive. (laughs) What you just experienced is how a church service or camp meeting may have begun in the 1800s by James White. He would come walking down the aisle, thumping on his Bible, and singing this hymn. I am David. I forgot where I was. And we're the Newharth family. For decades, I came to church and participated each Sabbath. I was born an Adventist, raised from birth that way. But as I've gotten older, I've discovered that God desires a personal relationship with me and with you. In 2013, our family went on a mission trip to Panama to help build a church with Maranatha. It was like the Christmas traveling trip um, about that time of the year, and we really enjoyed it. Had a nice time, built a couple of churches with a group of about 80 people. And during that time, it was very hot and uncomfortable. The weather like today with the snow coming down, that's that's my weather. When it's 95 and sweaty, that's someone else's weather. That's my wife's weather. There you go. So there's some for everybody here, weather-wise. So, but I really discovered the true joy of sacrificial giving. I was on a church roof. A gentleman who was in charge was up there, and he looked like he was going to fall off the roof from fainting. He was, it, was, it was really hot. It was over 100 and some degrees on the roof. And so I climbed up there in my stubborn German way and said, I'll get this. Even if I pass out, we'll finish this roof. So me and a couple of Hispanic guys, I speak no English, uh, Spanish. I learned a couple of words, I think, on, on that, that, that day on the roof. But we got that roof finished, and when I sat down, it, it, there was just this, I just felt like I had done something satisfactory. It was hot. It was uncomfortable. It was a challenge for me, a spiritual challenge, because every part of my being wanted to get off that hundred and some degree roof and get in the shade. But I refused, maybe based on stubbornness, but we got it done. 
I've continued to be, to be inspired as we have gone over the years since then on seven more mission trips into Mexico and helped build 35 churches to the glory of God. Since then, I've committed over the last couple of years, my wife will speak more of this maybe a little bit later, I, our family, we've committed to read the Bible each day, and I've discovered a great truth. I've discovered that I'm a sinner. Any sinners in the building? And I'm in need of a Savior. We've been studying recently the righteousness of Christ, and I'm not going to go into a dialogue about that, but I just want to give something that, that the Lord inspired upon me a few days ago. I believe it's inspired. I've shared it with a few other people, and they've said, this is simple. What is the righteousness of Christ? How does that, how does that work in each one of us? Each of you had, had a mother or have a mother. She makes a batch of cookies. She puts them on the counter on a plate, and she says, don't eat them. Why do you not eat the cookie? If you don't eat the cookie because mama said not to, that is salvation by works. Okay? If you don't eat the cookie because you love your mother to the point where you respect her wishes, and you know that she has saved that for a special time, That's righteousness, Mike. That's the righteousness of Christ. When I do it for my love, for my Savior. Good morning and happy Sabbath. I'm Levi. I'm currently 17. I'll be 18 shortly. And uh, I love spending time about God's nature, and we'll see what I can do for the Lord uh, for work someday. I'm kind of still deciding. Good morning and happy Sabbath. I'm Lucas, I'm uh, 19 years old, and I love, um, I'm a hands-on guy, I like to do all that stuff, um, I like spending time in God's nature, and uh, looking at what he's made for us, all the snow, and it's really beautiful. Uh, I want to be a missionary bush pilot in Alaska when I'm older. Good morning, I'm Benjamin, I am currently... 14 years old, turning 15 soon, and I love playing the uh, piano and guitar, and I want to be a missionary bush pilot somewhere in the world in Mulder. I'm Lisa, and I was blessed to be raised in a Seventh-day Adventist home, but as I grew into my late teen years, um, my dad wanted to stop attending church because of some of the conflicts within the church, and so we began to spend Sabbaths out in nature. And when this happened, I was just embarking on my personal relationship with Christ, and it was really hard on me to not be going to church, and so I began to rebel against my father. And at the time, I felt like it was righteous, like it was Christ. And looking back now, with the wisdom I have now, I realized that all rebellion is of the devil. And as that rebellious seed began to sow in my heart, as I looked at him and what I felt was his hypocrisy, um, I launched into the world to try to fill that hole in my heart. And as I began to sink deeper and deeper to try to fill that hole in my heart, um, nothing filled that hole in the heart. And finally, after a few years, I reached um, rock bottom when I was in an abusive marriage and my son stopped breathing in my arms. And that is when I began to cry back out to God and realize that God is the only one who can solve my problems and fill that hole. And as I began to grow in my relationship with the Lord, I realized that I was just as much of a hypocrite because 
Hypocrisy is if we know what we should be doing, but we do not. So it's very easy to call someone else a hypocrite, but we're probably the biggest one when we do that. And so I praise the Lord that he has um, been patient with me, that he has sought me no matter how far I ran from him. And I just marvel at the ridiculously great life I live today in amazement. Our ministry is entitled New Hearts for Christ. It is a play on our last name and reflects our desire for God to create in each one of us a new heart through the reading of his word and allowing him to change our hearts and minds. In the fall of 2017, we spent four months living in our motorhome, drove through 44 states and over 17,000 miles to historical places around the United States. These were Adventist histories, historical places, and historical places based on the history of our country. As we went to the Adventist heritage sites, we were inspired as we read the stories and looked at the history there. And so as we shared our experience each weekend on the road, on, I'm sorry, at each church, we would just show up at a different church each weekend. Um, when, you have, when you have a 30-foot-some motor home, it's tough to find parking at times. Church parking lots, great solution. The worst thing that can generally happen is an elder will come out and ask you what you're doing about 8 the next morning. And you say, well, I'll be in Sabbath school in 30 minutes. And he's like, okay, sounds good. So that takes care of that problem. So Friday nights, we would do this. And Sabbath, we'd come and we would, we're, we, you know, everybody has their place in church, right? I'm going to bet, I'm going to guess you people sit there most of the time. <laughs> Just guessing. So our spot was about where you're sitting. And so we'd come into the church and we would find our, you know, our pew. And we would sit down and we would sing as a family. And most of the churches were between 15 and 50 people, maybe. So they would hear us singing in about 80% of the time. They'd, somebody would sneak over to us in the middle of the service and say, hey, would you mind a doing a little special music in 10 minutes. So we kind of got used to this, so we're like, okay, we better have a song or two prepared. So as we'd share our song, sing a song or two and share, and then they would ask us to share a little, about, a little bit about our trip, what this Washington-plated motorhome was doing in, you name the state. We were pretty much there. Um, so we shared about our, about our life, what we were up to a little bit, and people said, you guys really should start a ministry. Start sharing your story, what, what you feel the Lord has done for you. So we're not that special, honestly. We're just a family in search of a kingdom Amen. with the good Lord. So um, when we began our ministry, um, our first one that the Lord gave us was what we call the Midnight Cry, which is what you're going to hear today. And so we have that on DVD um, filmed right here in the beautiful Pacific Northwest so that um, you can watch that. We have a CD that's the exact same thing, but so that you can listen to it. Then we also, if you want to hear more about my um, testimony and the amazing miracles God has worked in our lives, we have um, that Growing in Christ on DVD to again watch, Growing in Christ to listen to. Um, Benjamin has a piano CD, and we should have another CD out any week as soon as we finish the artwork. And then we also have bookmarks, and these have our website. If you go to our website, you can watch, listen, and download all of these things completely free. So everything that we do um, is completely free. That is on purpose because Jesus Christ died on the cross for me for free, and so anything that, I, that any of us do is 
only because of the grace of God. And so we encourage you guys to grab as many as you want. We send boxes of these all over the world. So honestly, pick up as many as you want. If you want more, let us know. Um, Pass these out to your friends and family. We get people who say, somebody gave this to me, and they contact us. Tell us what a difference it's made in their lives to both Adventists and non-Adventists. They both like both of the programs. So feel free to um, use those as tools for evangelism. And after the service, they'll be out back on the little table on the left. And if we run out, one of us will be there and we'll help you grab some more. So we're serious when we mean they're free. So, or as t- t- and take as many as you like. Go ahead, Ben. I once was lost in sin, but Jesus took me in. And then a little light from heaven filled my soul. It paid my heart in love and wrote my name above. Just a little talk with Jesus made me whole. Now let us have a little talk with Jesus. Let us tell him all about our troubles. He will hear our faintest cry and he will answer by and by. Now when you feel a prayer will turn in and you know the fire is burning, you will find a little talk with Jesus makes it right. Sometimes my past seems drear without a ray of cheer. And then a cloud of doubt may hide the light of day. The midst of some eyes and hide the starry skies. But just a little talk with Jesus clears away. Now let us have a little talk with Jesus. Let us tell him all about our troubles. He will hear our faintest cry and he will answer by and by. When you feel a little prayer will turn in and you know a little fire is burning. You will find a little talk with Jesus makes it right. I go to him in prayer, he knows my every care, and just a little talk with my Jesus, whoa, makes it right. Now let us have a little talk with Jesus, let us tell him all about our troubles, he will hear our faintest cry, and he will answer by and by, when you feel it, a prayer will turn in, and you know that a You will find a little talk with Jesus. Find a little talk with Jesus. Find a little talk with Jesus makes it right. William Miller was born in 1782 in Massachusetts. He was the oldest of 16 children and he was raised in a farmer's family. He was the grandson of a pastor, and his mother taught him to read from the Bible. From a young age, it was noted that he was physically strong and intellectually bright. When he married, he moved to his wife's hometown, and he became a deist, which means he believed God made the world and then just left it, that God did not desire a relationship with his creation nor interfere in their lives. William was well-liked in the social circle, and for amusement, he would frequently mock preachers and religious matters. He had two Baptist pastors in the family, and when they would attempt to evangelize him, he would silence them very quickly by showing them contradicting Bible verses. On September 11, 1814, William Miller stood on the banks of Lake Champlain as he fought as a captain in the war against Great Britain. There were only 5,500 American soldiers compared to 11,000 well-armed British with their ships. 
During battle, a mortar exploded right beside Miller, but he survived, and that day the Americans won. That day, Miller knew beyond a doubt there was a God who had intervened to not only miraculously save his life, but completely change the course of world history. After the war, Miller moved to where his parents lived, and to appease his mother, he would attend church. But he complained about the boring deacons who would read the sermons when the pastor was gone. So his mother arranged for Miller to read a sermon. As Miller read a sermon on parenting, he was deeply convicted of his sins, and he saw a beautiful, loving Savior. So he decided to try reading the Bible for himself from the beginning to the end. When Miller finished, he discovered there was not a single contradiction in the entire Bible. He also discovered that the prophecy of Daniel 8.14 was about to be fulfilled. For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. Well, he reasoned, the cleansing must be the earth. Sorry, the sanctuary must be the earth, and thus the cleansing must be Christ's second coming. Thus he realized that Christ's second coming was soon. As Miller discovered this truth, he wanted to just keep quiet, though, and keep farming. But he kept hearing a voice. Go! Tell the world! This voice followed him for 13 years. He was so sick and tired of it, one day he made a deal with God. If God wanted him to preach, then send someone to ask him to preach. Less than half an hour later, his nephew knocked on the door, who had left the day before on horseback to come ask him to come preach at his church. William Miller was furious. He ran outside in a rage. He did not want to preach because he feared he was wrong. But he decided he needed to keep his end of the deal. As he went and preached that weekend and then came back, he continued to get more invitations. And for the next 12 years, Miller gave over 4,500 lectures to half a million people across America. Some thought Miller's conviction was crazy. There was a doctor in town who told people that Miller was a monomaniac. So when a family member was sick, Miller sent for that doctor. At the end of the doctor's visit, Miller told the doctor he had heard a rumor in town that he was a monomaniac, and he asked the doctor if he would be able to diagnose a monomaniac if he saw one. The doctor said, well, of course. So William Miller sat down with him, and they went over the prophecy of Daniel 8.14. And when he was done, the doctor believed. As I look at the life of William Miller, I see there's only one way to come to know Christ, and that is through me personally searching the scriptures. We cannot rely upon our parents, pastors, spouse, or anyone else for our salvation. We're not saved by the Seventh-day Adventist or Christian name, but we are saved by a personal relationship with Jesus Christ alone. His word, the Bible, is his primary method of communicating with each one of us. It provides real solutions to whatever struggle or challenge we may find ourselves in the midst of. As the Lord convicted me that I needed to have daily personal Bible study, Satan would attack and I would give up. For years, it's like I would get up, read my Bible, pray, come close to the Lord when times were tough. But then it's like as times would smooth out, I'd just get too busy and be kind of content in my own worldly ways, and I would just ignore that time with the Lord. And so as this went on for years, one evening after another hard day in the family, I said, I'm up tomorrow morning to read my Bible. And someone said, and how long is it going to last this time? The awful truth of those words pierced my soul. And out of stubbornness, I said, this time it's lasting me for the rest of my life. As I began to get up each morning and commit to this for the rest of my life, I thought, now all of a sudden life is going to be smooth, right? Because now I've committed it to God forever. But you know, it got even way worse. And it began to create such dissension in the family, I wondered, am I going to lose my family over this decision? But praise the Lord that after a very short time, 
our whole family came together and committed to all individually reading our Bibles each morning before gathering together for family worship. And as we have done this, we have discovered that it has not brought a life of just pure, peaceful happiness, joy with no trials. However, God has been able to speak to us and to guide us through all of those challenges and become our personal intimate Savior who is growing us. I challenge each one of us to commit to starting each day speaking to God and listening to him through the reading of his word. The Bible is God's love letter to us. He wants to walk and talk with us every time. He wants to guide us through life's daily challenges. As we seek him, we will find the joy of a personal relationship with him that can get us through any challenge here on earth and to eternal life with him. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses and the voice I hear falling on my ear the Son of God discloses and He walks with me and He talks with me and He tells me Yeah.
Harmon was born in 1827 in Maine. Ellen desperately wanted to become a school teacher, but at the age of nine, as she was walking home from school, a fellow student threw a rock and hit her in the head. She was carried home, and there she lay in a coma for three weeks, expected to die. Her father, upon returning home from a trip, asked, Who is this child who has suffered such a terrible accident? The fact that her own father didn't even recognize her cut her to the core. She attempted to return to school, but she couldn't bear it physically or mentally. And so she gave up the hopes of ever obtaining an education. As Ellen lay ill around the house, she sank into a very deep and dark depression. When Ellen was 12, William Miller came to their church and preached on getting ready to meet Jesus. Ellen went forward to show her desire for salvation, but in her heart she was secretly convinced that she was unworthy to be a child of God. The following year, she attended a camp meeting where she heard, God extends his mercy to all. She only need need to lead out her hand and to grasp his arm, but she expected some feeling of ecstasy and a true conversion, and she didn't feel anything. So at night, she wrestled at the thought of an everlasting hell, wondering if she was saved or not. One night, she had a dream of a very kind Jesus, and she finally confided her fears in her mother and pastor, who assured her, God will never withdraw his hand from anyone who is truly seeking him. Her victory came when she decided to simply trust and obey God's word rather than her feelings, and she was then at peace. Out of joy, Ellen promised God she would do all that he ever asked of her. Even though she had always been too timid to speak in public that very evening at prayer meeting, she felt impressed and shared her testimony of what God had done for her. As a young woman, Ellen married James White, a Millerite preacher who also was unable to attend school as a child because of physical problems, but who through God's miracle as a young adult, he became a teacher, preacher, writer, and editor. Together, they gave their lives wholeheartedly to the Lord's work, but this caused a great sacrifice in their personal lives. They were very poor, working a few days a week to support themselves and investing every moment possible in preaching the gospel in person and in writing. They were criticized and rejected by many people, including their own family and even Ellen's twin sister. They had four sons, but two of them died as children. Despite all of these trials, though, they faithfully day by day clung to faith in Jesus and obeyed God by sharing the truth of God's love. While Ellen only obtained a third-grade education, she wrote over 100,000 collegiate-level manuscript pages. Her books are in the Library of Congress, and she is the most translated nonfiction author in American literature. The words Ellen wrote were most definitely not her own, but from God alone. As a youth, I avoided Ellen's writings because of the quotes I heard. Later, I decided to try reading her for myself. I realized that most of what I had heard was misquoted and completely out of context. In her writings, I have found powerful words that have grown my love and understanding of the Bible. Each one of us on earth will undergo tests of faith. We began um, our commitment to spending time with God each morning in um, January of 2017. And it was only a few weeks later that we heard God's distinct voice tell us to sell our home in Monroe, Washington and move. We didn't want to move. Um, In fact, my husband had said over his dead body, would he ever move from his home? Um, We had grown up there. He had grown up there. His whole family was there. He worked for his family, had done that his whole life. My family had then moved to the town to join us because, of course, I would never be moving. Um, You know, our kids were finally out of diapers. We had the house remodeled. We had the shop built. We felt like we had finally arrived at the American dream. And all of a sudden, here was God whispering into our, our ears saying, sell it all, quit the jobs, and walk by faith. And it was a really scary time. 
But we decided to defy all human logic and um, step out in faith and trust of God. And God guided us in that next few, uh, few months to the exact home that we were to live in. Um, again, we went on a road trip. Um, God said, you need to spend time bonding as a family. What better way than to put all of you in a motor home for four months? Um, you'll learn to um, love each other. And so um, that was our jump start to um, revival of family relationships. And then again, right afterwards, God led us um, into ministry. And then, of course, we had to figure out how we were going to feed these growing teenage boys now. And so God um, also has led, and we started a business right there on our property in which God has literally brought us customers. And not only is it our business, but it is our evangelistic tool to reach the community. You know, Christ, looking back, I can see that Christ knew actually that he had a better life for us. But we were holding on to what was comfortable but not the best for us. And so hopefully through these experiences, we learn to trust and to cheerfully obey God, who knows the beginning from the end, and he only asks us to do what is in our very own best interest. Christ has done everything for each one of us. He's created us, loved us, died on a cross for us, sent his word to teach and warn us, and he's now interceding for us in heaven. He pleads with us to die to self and to accept him as our best friend. He's tenderly waiting for us to come to him so that he can pour out his glorious love and blessings upon us. In my darkness, Jesus found me, touched my eyes and made me see. Broke sin's chains that long had bound me. Him forever and praise Him for His glorious love. Oh, amazing truth to ponder! He whom angels host attend, Lord of heaven, God's Son, what wonder! He became the sinner's Him forever and praise Him for His glorious love and praise Him for His glorious love. The prophecy of Daniel pointed to October 22, 1844. On that day, Hiram Edson and fellow Millerites gathered in his home to sing as they awaited Jesus' coming. They sang all day, but Jesus did not come. As the clock struck midnight, Hiram later wrote, Our fondest hopes and expectations were blasted, and such a spirit of weeping came over us as I have never experienced before. 
It seemed that the loss of all earthly friends could have been no comparison. We wept and we wept. I mused in my heart saying, my Advent experience has been the richest and brightest of all of my Christian experience. If this has proved a failure, what was the rest of my Christian experience worth? Has the Bible proved a failure? Is there no God, no heavens, no golden home city, no paradise? Is all of this stuff just a cunningly devised fable? We wept and we wept till the day dawned. As the day dawned, though, as Hiram thought over his life, he realized that when brought into straight places, God had always faithfully guided him through them. At this thought, he and the other men went out to the barn to pray. They prayed in earnest until they sensed that God had heard their prayer and promised to explain the disappointment and make it clear. The men in faith then went inside to eat breakfast. As they were finishing breakfast, Hiram said, let's go and encourage some of our brethren. And so they stepped out that front door and went out into that cornfield, and all of a sudden, Hiram realized the sanctuary was not this earth. The sanctuary was up in heaven. He had never done this before, but he ran back home, prayed, or, uh, randomly opened his Bible, and there he opened up to Romans, where Paul was discussing the sanctuary up in heaven and Jesus Christ as our high priest. He was so excited that they um, then sold their wedding silver to pay for a tract to spread this Bible truth. Both Joseph Bates and James White read this, and within a few months, Bates visited Hiram and shared with him the Sabbath truth. Hiram jumped to his feet and said, Brother Bates, the Sabbath is light and truth, and I am with you to keep it. So then in 1848, their farm was the site of an evangelistic Sabbath conference. This launched the Sabbatarian Adventist movement that soon became the Seventh-day Adventist Church. In 1850, Hiram sold his farm to put money towards publishing God's truth in the Review and Herald. Hiram then built up another farm and sold it only two years later to fund even more printing work. No matter what, Hiram kept his mind fixed on Jesus Christ in heaven. He never gave up his hope, but he did give up his earthly possessions to spread that hope. When we come to Christ, our earthly trials are not taken away, but God is always present to guide us through them. Hebrews 12, 3-5 says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I don't know what your suffering is this morning, but I do know that God's word is true this morning, and he is alive and well. As we fix our minds on Jesus Christ, he will personally reveal himself to us and faithfully guide us one step at a time. I have fixed my mind on another time, on time on another time. I have set my course on the narrow way, on the narrow way, for I know the time. 
have set my course on the narrow way, on the narrow way. Even so, Lord, come quickly. This is my fervent prayer, for I've caught a glimpse of glory, and I'm longing to be did not believe it was their job to spread the good news of a Seventh-day Sabbath. However, at their general conference of 1841, the Seventh-day Baptists decided God required them to share the Sabbath truth. So in 1842, they formed a tract society and printed tracts to hand out. During the years 1843 to 45, they had special days of fasting and prayer as they worked diligently to spread the good news of Sabbath. Rachel Oakes, a 30-year-old Seventh-day Baptist widow who lived in Washington, New Hampshire, was very diligent. In the spring of 1844, Rachel attended a communion on Sunday by Millerite preacher Frederick Wheeler. He said, all persons confessing communion with Christ in such a service should be ready to follow and obey God and keep his commandments in all things. Rachel Oaks confronted him afterwards and said, I came near getting up at that point in the meeting and saying something. He said, well, what was it you had on your mind to say? She said, I wanted to tell you that you'd better set that table up until you're ready to keep all ten of God's commandments. Those words cut Wheeler deeply, and after study of the scripture, he soon began to keep Sabbath. He was the first Millerite minister to keep Sabbath. Rachel worked hard to convince those other Millerite families in Washington of the Sabbath, and a few accepted the Sabbath the fall of 1844. From here, word began to spread one by one. Another minister accepted the Sabbath message, who wrote to Joseph Bates, who spoke to Hiram Edson and James and Ellen White, and soon there were Sabbath keepers spreading throughout the world. At the end of their three-year campaign, the Seventh-day Baptists gathered, and they were reported that they were very disappointed that Christian denominations had rejected their evangelistic efforts of the Seventh-day Sabbath. But there was a noted exception that Millerite Adventists responded positively. 
Do you think it is chance that the only years the Seventh-day Baptists have spread the Sabbath truth was 1843 to 1845? Absolutely not. That is God's perfect timing. Rachel Oaks felt like a failure as she attempted to spread the Sabbath truth. She planted seeds all over, but she did not see a quick, large harvest. She might have felt like a failure, but when in heaven she sees the results of her labor, I believe she will be thrilled. God created each one of us to have a relationship with him and to spread the gospel. We may feel small. We may feel like complete failures, but we are called to plant seeds of God's truth. We must not get discouraged and give up when we don't see the harvest. Today is the day to sow seed. Heaven is the time to reap. of the Broadway in the hurry and the strife tell of Jesus love and mercy give to them the word of life little is much when God is in it labor not for wealth nor fame there's a crown the place you're called to labor seem too small and little known it is great if god is in it and he'll not forsake his own are you laid aside from service body worn from toil and care You can still be in the battle, in the sacred place of prayer. Little is much when God is in it, labor not for wealth nor fame. There's a crown and you can win it if you go in Jesus' name. Here has ended and our race on earth is run. He will say, If we are faithful, welcome home, my child. Well done. Little is much when God is in it, labor not for wealth nor fame. stories is of a young boy named Eugene Farnsworth who lived in that town of Washington, New Hampshire. 
The Farnsworth family accepted William Miller's message to prepare for Christ's incoming. They also were the first Millerite family to accept the Sabbath. And their church was the first Sabbath-keeping Advent church, and they were on fire for God. But as the Seventh-day Adventist church organized, they began to have a bad attitude, and they were watching for any discipline or rebuke from Battle Creek as an excuse to rebel. By the 1860s, they had closed the church and backslid into the world. In hopes of of a revival, Jay and Andrews was sent out for years without much success. And so finally, James and Ellen White and Jay and Andrews came to the town, and the doors of the church were opened. Families came to criticize their words. Ellen White wasn't happy with the message God gave her, but from the pulpit, she began pointing out specific and secret sins one by one of those sitting in the pews before her. As Eugene sat in the pew in the back, he knew this was his chance to know if Ellen White was a true prophet because she would know about his father's secret chewing of tobacco. Eugene and his father had been working out in the snow, and he had seen his father secretly spit in the snow and cover it up, and he had not told a single soul. Sure enough, Ellen White gave testimony of Mr. Farnsworth's secret chewing of tobacco. Mr. Farnsworth and the other adults confessed their sins and made a complete turn in their lives. The youth were then inspired, and they joined in a complete revival of that church. Eighteen youth made a decision for Christ, and despite it being the end of December, twelve youth insisted on immediate baptism. A hole was cut one foot deep through the ice, and they were baptized in Mill and Pond. The majority of those youth went on to work evangelistically for the Seventh-day Adventist Church with that kind of determination. Eugene was one of those youth. On another occasion, Jane Andrews came to his home to visit, and Eugene, who was extremely shy, quickly slipped outside the door to go hoe corn. Mr. Andrews came and picked up a hoe, and Eugene could see very quickly that Mr. Andrews did not know a single thing about how to hoe corn, but he just kept silent, and he just kept hoeing. Finally, Mr. Andrews said, Eugene, what is your purpose in life? Eugene said, well, I'm going to be a lawyer. Mr. Andrews replied, well, son, you might do a good deal worse. What are you going to do before you're a lawyer? Well, I'm going to go to school until I get an education. What will you do then? I'm going to study law. Yes, and what next? Well, I hope to practice law. Yes, and what next? I hope to earn some money and get a home and a family. Yes, and what next? At this, Eugene began to grow nervous. He did not like the way he was being cornered, for he saw exactly what it was. Well, I suppose I shall die. Again, Mr. Andrews replied, yes, and what next? My boy, you take hold of something, something that will help you span that chasm, something that will land your feet safely on the other side where you will be safe for eternity. Those words changed Eugene's life. He honored those words until the day he died as he spent his life as a missionary for Christ. Brothers and sisters, our time on earth is short, and we, like Eugene, must make a decision now as to where we are going to spend our eternity. Living the ways of the world while showing up at church every Sabbath is pure hypocrisy. We must take hold of Christ with all of our heart, soul, and mind so that we can land safely on the other side. We must live fully for Christ, being a full-time missionary wherever God places us. It isn't easy work. Ellen White preferred some different words. It isn't easy work. Mr. Andrews had to grab a hoe and head into the cornfield and pray for God's wisdom of words with a youth. It isn't easy work. Eugene had to lay his shyness in the dust of that cornfield and speak boldly for the Lord. But the rewards of this kind of work are completely out of this world for eternity. 
Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and that sin which so easily entangles our heart, and let us run with endurance that race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured that cross for you and I, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God in triumph. For consider Christ who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you and I may not grow weary and lose heart today. Let us dare to surrender our lives completely to Jesus Christ. Let us dare to live them for Jesus. Standing by a purpose true, heeding God's command. Honor them, the faithful few, all hail to Daniel's band. Dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm, dare to make it known. Many mighty men are lost, daring not to stand. Who for God had been a host by joining Daniel's band. Dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm, dare to make it known. Many giants, great and tall, stalking through the land. Headlong to the earth would fall if met by Daniel's band. Dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm, dare to make it known. Hold the gospel banner high on to victory grand. Satan and his hosts defy and shout for Daniel's band. Dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm, dare to make it known. Dare to have a purpose firm, dare to make it known. Joseph Bates was born in 1792 in Massachusetts. As a young boy with his home overlooking a very active shipping port, he dreamed of sailing and traveling the world. Finally, at the age of 15, against his parents' desires, he set sail on his first voyage. Through the years, he experienced many dangers. On one voyage, there was a shark swimming beside the ship, which was an omen that someone later that day would fall overboard and be eaten by that shark. Later that day, while Joseph was climbing the masthead, he lost his balance and he fell 60 feet into the ocean. A rope was thrown at him, and at the last second, he barely managed to grab on and be pulled back up to safety. Upon getting back on the boat, he went and looked back over, and there was the shark still swimming there. Later, he was taken as a slave for many years on a ship, but despite all of these challenges in life, he quickly advanced in position, and he was soon captain and part ship owner. While at sea, God began to change his life. Bates loved to read, and on one of his voyages, his wife gave him a New Testament. 
Bates loved to read, and when he came home, he had been converted. Bates, um, he was convicted alcohol and cursing was wrong. Later, he threw his tobacco pipe into the ocean, and by the end of his life, he discarded tea and coffee. He retired at the age of 36 with today what would be equivalent to a million dollars. During his retirement, Bates used his time and money to promote temperance and to oppose slavery. As God revealed his truths, Bates accepted them and grew in the Lord. In 1839, Bates accepted the Advent message and then put his personal wealth and time into spreading the news of Christ's soon coming. In 1845, he read an article about Sabbath. He then traveled from Fairhaven, Massachusetts to Washington, New Hampshire. Upon arriving by foot at the home of Frederick Wheeler in the middle of the night, he was so excited to study the Bible in regards to Sabbath that they stayed up the rest of the night. On the way home, Bates' friend passed him on the bridge and said, What news have you? Bates responded, The news is that the seventh day is the Sabbath. His friend responded, I'll have to check my Bible and see about that one. But the following Sabbath, they kept it together. Bates then spent his time and money spreading the good news of Sabbath. In 1847, as Bates was writing his third tract on Sabbath, his wife Prudence told him that she needed flour. How much flour do you lack? Bates asked. Four pounds. So Bates went to the store and returned with four pounds of flour. Prudence replied, Have you, Captain Bates, a man who has sailed vessels out of New Bedford to all parts of this world, been out and returned with only four pounds of flour? Bates responded, Wife, I spent for those articles the last money I had on earth. Bitterly, Prudence sobbed and exclaimed, What are we going to do? Bates stood to his feet, and with all the dignity of a captain directing his vessel, he said, I am going to write a book, and I am going to circulate it and spread the Sabbath truth before the entire world. Well, said Prudence, and what are we going to live on in the meantime? Bates replied with a smile, The Lord's going to open the way. That's what you always say, she said, as she disappeared in tears. About half an hour later, Bates felt impressed to go to the post office. He found a letter there with postage due, but he told the postmaster he had no money. The postmaster told him to just take the letter and to pay him later, but Bates refused. So the postmaster opened the letter. Out fell $10. Bates gave orders for barrels of food to be delivered to his wife. He strode back across that bridge and made arrangements for 1,000 of his Sabbath tracts to be printed. Bates returned back home, sat down at his desk, and kept writing. Prudence came in and demanded, where did all of these barrels of food come from? Bates replied, the Lord sent it. That's what you always say, she said. Bates handed her the note that accompanied the money, and she again left in tears. Brothers and sisters, how is our faith this morning? Do we love Jesus enough to give everything we have to tell others of the good news of him? Galatians 6, 7 through 9 says, do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. We will reap what we sow. Whoever sows to please the flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary while doing good, for at the right time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. This next song is a poem written by Annie Smith. It is thought that the first stanza refers to Joseph Bates, the second to James White, and the third to J. N. Andrews. I saw one weary, sad and torn, with eager steps press on the way, who along the hallowed cross had 
born, still looking for the promised day. While many a line of grief and care upon his brow was furrowed there, I asked what buoyed his spirits up. Oh, this said he, the blessed sword and shield who boldly braved the world's cold frown and fought unyielding on the field to win an everlasting crown the one with toil oppressed by foes no murmur from his heart arose I asked what buoyed his spirits up oh this and he the blessed there was one who left behind the cherished friends of early years and honor, pleasure, wealth resigned to tread the path bedewed with tears. Through trials deep and conflict sore, it's still a smile of joy he wore. I asked what buoyed his spirits up, oh, this said he the blessed while pilgrims here we journey on in this dark veil of sin and gloom, through tribulation, hate and scorn, or through the portals of the tomb, till our returning King shall come to take his exiled captives home. Oh, what can buoy our spirits up? Oh, this say we the blessed. In 1844, the Millerites, in faith that Christ was coming, did not harvest their potatoes. Instead, they spent their time spreading the good news of Christ's soon coming. So did they starve to death then because of their misunderstanding? The potatoes harvested on time that year in America were destroyed by the potato blight. But the Millerites still had potatoes in the ground they were able to dig up, eat through the winter, and now sell for a high price. What about the misunderstanding of October 20 to 1844? Was William Miller crazy? Absolutely not. This was before internet and phones and all that other ways of communication, and yet there were other individuals in other countries who were studying their Bibles and also were convicted that the 2300-day prophecy would be fulfilled in 1844, and they felt the need to prepare for Christ's soon coming. Were the Millerites foolish to think that Christ's coming was soon? Not at all. Eve expected her son Cain to be the Messiah, and when he murdered his brother, she then expected Seth to be the Messiah. Soon God's people gave up on an ever-returning Messiah. But a few individuals who were personally studying God's word knew when to expect the Messiah, and they were richly blessed to see and recognize Jesus Christ for exactly who he was. Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his disciples thought that Christ would deliver them from Rome, but they were wrong. They lived through that great disappointment when Christ died on the cross. But when they realized that prophecy was fulfilled, that Christ had died for their sins, that great disappointment was turned into such a great joy that they then carried the gospel to the ends of the world in only a few short years. Christ's faithful children expected his return October 22, 1844. They were mistaken as to what the cleansing of the sanctuary was. But soon after, just like the disciples, they saw that prophecy had been fulfilled. Christ had entered the most holy place for the judgment to occur so that he can come again. 
as Christ judges, each child who repents and walks with Christ may have a cleared record and name written in the book of life. Brothers and sisters, the judgment is good news for us. It is him clearing our record and coming soon to take us home. As we personally study deeply the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, we see that Christ is returning very soon. Let us each be ready for Christ's return. That Advent message still rings loud and clear. Just when we feel like giving up, just when we think that Jesus is never going to come, that midnight cry will sound. The trumpet of the Lord will be heard. And we indeed will see Jesus coming with our very own eyes. prophecies fulfilled and signs of the times they're appearing
brothers and sisters, I want to be ready for what Christianity was. And as we began to embark upon reading our Bibles every morning, like my husband said, he never went into the dark world like I did. He was always the good guy, going to church, doing what was right. He didn't think he really was that bad. But the first step is to realize that even if I've been attending church every Sabbath of my life, I'm a horrid sinner. I'm worse than the prostitutes and the bums out there. Why? Because I don't think I'm that bad. That's what makes me worse than even a prostitute. A prostitute knows who she is. That's why Christ said the prostitutes would enter before the Pharisees. And as we realize, as we read our Bibles, that I'm a sinner, now we come to a new crossroad. What are we going to do with that? Shove it? Pretend that voice isn't bothering us? Or are we going to get down and fall on our knees? And then when we fall on our knees, what are we going to do? Just say, I love Jesus, and that's good enough? Or am I going to say that I love Jesus and I need him? Because without him, I'm going to stand up and continue to do the same thing. I need him living within my heart, within my mind. I need him guiding me every day, all day long. Otherwise, Lisa Newhart's a really ugly person. Do I realize that? And um, as we began to embark on this journey, the Lord brought me back to the parable of the ten virgins. We've all studied that our whole life, right? We all know it backwards and forwards. And yet the Lord came to me and said, you do not know that parable. You have not read it. Stop and read it. And I'm like, oh, no, Lord, I could, like, tell it to you by memory. Oh, no, go back. They were all virgins. What does that mean? They were all Seventh-day Adventists, unadulterated truth. We're not talking about the world. They were all virgins. They were all Seventh-day Adventists. How many were sleeping? All of them. That means I am sleeping. That means I should be more awake than even I am. They were all sleeping. And then he brought to my mind how they each had their lamps trimmed and burning. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. We're not talking Adventists who are just showing up at church on Sabbath. We're talking about the ones who are studying their Bibles every day. They were trimmed. They're studying them deeply. We're not talking casually read a nice little devotion and said prayer. They're studying their Bibles every day. They're all sleeping. And then came the part that really I had to wrestle with the Lord about. They all had oil. What does the oil represent? Just a second. They all had oil and yet half of them were lost? They all had the Holy Spirit and half of them were lost. And I had to go to the Lord in deep prayer and say, Lord, show me what in the world does this mean for my life? And as I wrestled with the Lord, the Lord brought to my mind, how would somebody grow the Holy Spirit? And I said, I don't know, Lord. I no clue. And the Lord said, well, what is the unpardonable sin? It's ignoring the Holy Spirit until it leaves. So what would half filled of oil be? It's sometimes saying yes to the voice, and it's sometimes saying, oh, that sounds like a great idea. I'll get to that tomorrow. And tomorrow never comes because we keep putting the voice of conviction off. 
And I had to come to a point where I said, dear Jesus, I don't want that to be me. I want to grow the Holy Spirit. I want the Holy Spirit to feel like he can freely speak to me. And so I made a commitment to begin to, when I hear that still small voice, to immediately respond and immediately change my life in that area. Not put it off for another hour or 24 or 48, which then never happens. And so, brothers and sisters, I believe that in the times in which we are living in this last couple years, there are a group of people who are beginning to trim their lamps. And there are a group of people who are beginning to study out what it means to have Christ within, his righteousness within, and to fill and believe and surrender to the power of Jesus Christ. And so this morning we want to make an altar call. If you want to commit to reading your Bible and praying every day, and you want to make a commitment to responding to that Holy Spirit's voice, to see the power of God lived out within you, we invite you to come forward and to sing this last song of dedication with us. This isn't a once saved, always saved. This is a I want to do this today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Though no one join me, still I will follow. Though no one join me, still I will follow. Though no one join me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back The world behind me The cross before me The world behind me The cross before me The world behind me The cross before me No turning back No turning back No turning back, no turning back. Let's pray. Lord, here we are in the quietness of your holy temple. Lord, we're all like sheep. We've gone astray, maybe not this moment, but at times in our life. Lord, lift us up like Joseph. Lift us up like the prophets. Lord, and save us, for we know we cannot save ourselves. Lord, put within our minds to do thy will because we love thy will. We love thy son, and we love all that entails. Lord, help us to to avoid the cookie 
because we love you, not because you just told us to do it. Lord, I've become convinced by the Spirit, Lord, that to love thy law, to love thy heart, thy soul, thy mind, Lord, to keep my mind on you fixed is my only hope. Lord, I pray for each person here today that they may, wherever they're at in their life, Lord, that you will that, that bring them good health and strength. Lord, that you will bring them conviction, whatever that entails, that they may love to read thy word. Lord, it gives us hope. It gives us strength. It gives us the message of eternal life. Lord, I thank you for each person who came here dearly this morning, especially with this weather. Lord, I pray that you put your hedge around them like Job. And protect them on the way home. Keep them safe in their goings to and fro. But Lord, may we all meet upon the cloud because we have said, Lord, it's thy will and thy will be done. In thy name, amen. We want to thank you for coming. My wife and I are going to go to the back and shake hands for those of you who are comfortable. If you're not, it's okay. We will not be offended.